invite you to Colossians chapter 3. God created the universe to magnify the splendor of His being. He called the world into existence to share the wonder of His perfections with His creatures, that they might revel with Him in His glory. And for Adam and Eve, the loving enjoyment of fellowship with God was genuine. They were not like the fairy tale princess who married a powerful king she did not love, but whom she remained faithful to because she had no choice. This was not the case with Adam and Eve. Their love for God was real. Their love for Him and joy in God depended upon their willful choice to obey God's Word. We picture the garden and could perhaps put it right here in our own presence. And picture here in front of us on a table a simple piece of fruit. The environment is paradise. There is perfect fellowship with God and with one another. Yet Adam and Eve make the willful choice to reach for that fruit and take it and eat it. And what is God's response to their decision? It was just a snack. Really? Just one bite of forbidden fruit. That's all. And think for a moment as your mind scans the history of humanity, God's response to this one choice to take a bite of food. War and genocide as armies pillage and rape and torture and exterminate people. Disease, plague, fire, pestilence, drought, flood, tsunami, hurricane, tornado, mudslides, pollution, retaliation, Cheating, stealing, lying, suicide, depression, kidnapping, rape, abuse of power, murder, slander, prejudice, racism, drugs, gangs, corruption, injustice, and stalking everything and everyone everywhere on planet Earth death. All of this because a man and a woman took a bite of fruit. Isn't God overreacting? Is all this suffering and death a fitting response to one simple act of disobedience? God goes on record generations after this sin. He goes on record in His revealed truth to say this is the punishment of sin. Isn't He overreacting?
We could say, in answer to this question, it is certainly true that God is not thrashing the world over and over again in response to Adam and Eve's sin. Not as such. We are simply reaping the natural wages of sin. And as sinners interact with sinners, the collision is horrifying. But the thought that God may be overreacting comes out of hearts that take forbidden fruit all the time. And have a propensity to say, it's really not that big of a deal. I think a better answer to the question is really this, that we simply do not understand the moral purity and utter holiness of God. What is truly shocking is that God lets any sinners live at all. Only His grace restrains His just anger and keeps Him from wiping all of us off the surface of the earth and into the fires of hell. If we for one moment could get a full sense of the horror of sin against the holy God, we would die of the shock. Sin is an insidious poison that corrupts in our souls the ability to apprehend God as the infinite source of all satisfaction and joy. And sin poisons our capacity to see the cosmic proportions of its horror in our lives and in the lives of the human story. But we gather today, don't we, in hope. We gather today to lift songs of praise to God who is rich in mercy. And though our sin has offended His holiness and deserves nothing but judgment and punishment, Jesus Christ was sent as the Son of God to this earth, taking on flesh, living a sinless life, dying in the place of the sinner to bear the weight of our sin, the judgment of God and His wrath upon us and rising from the dead in victory over sin and death and Satan and hell. So that sinners who by His mercy come to saving faith in His work are justified freely by faith in the gospel. If you are here today without Jesus Christ as your Savior, you do not have confidence that the wrath of God has been covered by Him for you, then I call you and encourage you to embrace this salvation from God's wrath by placing your faith in the work of Jesus Christ, His death and resurrection. For those of us who have done this, who have come to saving faith in Christ, we have been gloriously delivered from the power of sin through our union with Jesus Christ. Yet the battle with sin continues, doesn't it? That battle rages on. And it is this battle that Paul addresses to the Colossian believers in his letter to them. In chapter 1 and verse 21, if we just refer back there, Colossians 1 and verse 21, he says to them, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. 
We are reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Reconciled to God through the death of Jesus Christ, and we are in some sense in his body. Those who have come to saving faith in him. Verse 27, Paul labors then to see this reality formed in the Colossian believers. 127, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all the energy that he powerfully works within me. Chapter 2 and verse 12. Chapter 2 and verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. So we have in the book of Colossians this repeating theme of having died and risen with Christ, of Christ now dwelling within us. And yet, there is reference now as we come to chapter 3 of this continuing struggle with sin. Paul addresses the believer's conflict here and says that we should engage the battle as his people. Now, if you love your sin... You really have no desire to be free from it, then I think, number one, you need to see if you are in the faith. Examine your own heart. I believe that anyone who knows Christ as Savior has developed some level of hatred of sin. If you do not want to be delivered from it, these comments are not directly addressed to you through the remainder of the sermon. But you need to test your heart and see if I am really in the faith. But again, for those of us who know Christ the Savior, where there is genuine faith, Christ is in us. And residing within us, there is a hatred of sin to some level. We don't want it. We don't like it. We know that it is an opponent to our soul. It tears down our relationship with Him. It destroys who we are to be in Christ. It works against it. And so in this battle against sin, we need counsel. We need a word from God. It is an ugly and horrifying thing, yet we hold to the resurrection of Christ and His provision. But how then do we go about the battle? Paul says to us here, the Spirit instructs us, first of all, that we must set our minds on the reality of our union with the reigning Christ. Verse 1 of chapter 3. If then you have been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. We have the doctrinal truth here on which this whole exhortation stands clearly uh, revealed to us again that we are united by faith to Christ and participate in His death and resurrection. I don't know that there's any way for us to illustrate this because I don't know that this relationship exists anywhere else in the cosmos. It is a unique relationship. Being united to the death and resurrection of Christ, but perhaps a bit 
We could illustrate a piece of it by picturing a child living in, let's say, Afghanistan, who was adopted by a wealthy English land baron who migrated from Afghanistan to England in his own childhood. At adoption, this newly adopted child into this home of this great baron, at adoption, this baby is united with his new parents in their immigration and citizenship. In other words, all that they did to move from one country to the other and all that has happened to them in prosperity in their new life, this child enters into all of that. Now imagine this boy from Afghanistan growing up in his adoptive parents' wealthy home with all of the privileges and rights of uh, this family, but as an adult, never votes never gets a driver's license, never owns property, but always lives in England as a visitor because he knows he was once from Afghanistan. I mean, take the guy and just say it's time to wake up, right? It's time to start living out who you really are in your identity with your parents who have adopted you. Now the illustration again falls so far short because there's no such relationship in this universe to demonstrate our relationship with Christ. But in a real way, Christ's death to sin and His resurrection power has become ours. We've entered into it. We have joined with Him such that Christ is in us and we are identified with the work that He has done. And what is the fitting response? When we set our minds on earthly passions and earthly ambitions and earthly religious schemes, we ignore our true identity with the reigning Christ in glory. Our citizenship is in heaven, where Christ reigns as victor over sin, and we are Jesus' heirs. The only answer is to live like it, to set our thoughts and our affections there, this isn't a suggestion that Paul gives to the Colossians. It's not a suggestion the Spirit gives to us. This is a call to action, and it is actual indwelling power through the risen Christ within us. This is God's counsel for how to deal with bitterness and depression, with an unforgiving spirit, with materialism, with sensuality and pride and worry and the fear of man. This is Gold in instruction to us. The answer is to set our focus on the reigning Christ. Verse 3, for you have died, he reminds us, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So that when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. United to Jesus in his death and resurrection, we're hidden in him who is hidden in God. And we are destined to inherit the glories of heaven with him. There is, so to speak, Christian, those who know Christ genuinely as Savior, there is, so to speak, a seat at a banquet table that is set for a fellowship meal in the presence of God that has your name on it. It's there. It's yours. You will inherit eternity. You will inherit with Christ a this standing and have inherited with Christ this standing invitation at that table forever and ever and ever. It's yours. 
We literally belong to the age to come. Our citizenship is there. The reigning Christ is our Lord and our life, and we need to set our orientation accordingly. The reality of this union with Christ, writes William Barclay, will obviously give us a new set of values. Things which the world thought important, we will no longer worry about. Ambitions which dominated the world will be powerless to touch us. We will go on using the things of the world, but we will use them in a new way. We will, for instance, set giving above getting, serving above ruling, forgiving above avenging. The Christian standard of values will be God's, not men's. That's well said. Warren Wiersbe used the great illustration I read some time ago of two very sensually driven sisters. Their particular interest was in dancing and wild parties, and they loved to use their bodies to attract attention and to get uh, popularity, and they just gave themselves to this way of life. But in the grace of God, these two sisters at the same time came to saving faith. And they grew quickly and dramatically and received one day an invitation to go to a wild party and they sent this RSVP. We regret that we cannot attend because we recently died. Isn't that good? <laughs> that is just, that is, that's it. That is it, exactly. They had died. Their spiritual death rendered them alive to the realities of the reigning Christ, and they demonstrated their loyalty to Him and their faith in His promises by saying no to ungodly and worldly lust. Christian, we need to set our focus on Christ seated on His throne. We need to set our focus on our seat reserved at the eternal table in God's presence. We need to set our focus on the future day when our hidden union with Christ is revealed in glory. With what is not now seen will be seen. And then to go about our lives. And I know some will think, this is just being so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. The Bible actually looks at it in the very opposite direction. When our focus and our attention is grounded in the reality of the age to come, it directs the way that we live in this age. It transforms us. And it fills us with the love that God intends for us, for Him and for others. We must set our minds on the reality of our union with the reigning Christ. And as we struggle with sin, we must admit that's not where our focus is centered as we struggle with sin. But moving past that reality and that focus and orientation, we find secondly here that we must put indwelling sin to death. Verse 5, put to death therefore what is earthly in you. The Greek text reads here, the members of the things on the earth. That's the phrase, the members, the things on the earth. The idea is our earthly, sensual, sinful existence. Put it to death. Now, if you're thinking carefully here, there's a glaring paradox that meets us at this place. Didn't Paul say we died? Notice verse 3, for you have died. Verse 20 of chapter 2, with Christ you died. 
And now he says, put to death the earthly members, the earthly existence. So which is it, Paul? He's saying two things. On the one hand, we, there is a fully realized salvation. We are saved. We are dead to sin. We are positioned with Christ in heaven. We are partakers of the age to come. This is our position in Christ. It's a done deal. It's settled and sealed. But on the other hand, we are being saved. We must put sin to death. We must actively, progressively, obediently be who we are. So it is a both-and situation. Is that which is realized and complete, and it is that which is not yet fully finished. We are complete in Christ and seated in the heavenly realms with Him, on the one hand. On the other, we are on earth, and the reality of our status is being worked out as we sever the roots of sin in our daily life and, and await glorification. You've got to be able to live with that tension, that both-and-ness, in the theology of the New Testament. F.F. Bruce writes that our death and resurrection with Christ severed the links which bind, severed the links which bound you to, I'll get my you's and he's and thus and all that together. Let me say it again. Your death and resurrection with Christ severed the links which bound you to the dominion of sin. In short, be in actual practice what you now are by divine act. Perhaps we could picture it somewhat this way. Again, it's an illustration that falls far short. But let's say that one night you're sleeping, you have a dream. And you find yourself in a dank, smelly cave. And you have the sense that you have lived here all of your life. Along both walls of this horrifying situation are people who are shackled to the wall. And you look down at your wrists and realize that you once too were shackled to the wall of this cave. But there on both sides are people shackled to the cave, living out acts of sin everywhere that you look. You hear it in their words, you see it in their actions. Every sin imaginable they are doing and living and acting there. And they are actively calling you to come back and join them and put the shackles back on. To join into their activity once again. But, from your vantage point where you stand, you see something that none of these people can see. You can see out through that cave... In fact, not only see, but smell and hear the sounds of a beautiful summer day. These people have never seen that day before. They can't catch the smell. They don't hear hear the wind. And they don't hear the call of a godly individual who is outside of that cave calling you out and saying, in time we're going to send a message into you in the cave and you're going to come out here and join us for a picnic lunch. Now, as you interact in that cave with these sinners, your perceptions of the world beyond need to directly influence the way that you interact with them. Now, there is a sketchy, 
picture of what the Christian life is to be here. We live amidst sinners who are shackled to the walls of a cave and have absolutely no perception of the life to come. But we do. We're not there yet. We're not with Christ in all actuality in His presence, but we smell heaven. We hear it sounds. We can, in some sketchy way, see a vision of that beautiful light that is on the outside of the cave, and that vision should change the way that we act when we interact with sinners. We don't shackle ourselves back up against the wall. We don't talk to them the same way that we did. We don't join them in the same way that we once did. But we begin to put to death this whole existence. And it means, as Paul instructs us here, to put to death sexual immorality. Verse 5. That is, any act of sex outside of marriage, put it to death. Sever the root in thought and word and deed, romantic fantasies, pornography, flirtation, lust. Put it to death. Impurity, a more general word, a wider reference. Passion, here the evil cravings of any sort, be it sex or food or drink or music or popularity or money or whatever it is. Evil desire and covetousness, which is idolatry. Covetousness, that is, idolatry serves false gods to get what it wants for itself. Covetousness is that same sort of wanting to get for oneself. In our world, such sins are seen as small things. Just a little bite of forbidden fruit. But God thinks quite differently, verse 6. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Sin is not trivial. It excites the anger of God and someday will be fully judged. These very kinds of sin we need to strip off. Because of our sin, all of us have lived as objects of God's wrath. Verse 7, In these you too once walked when you were living in them. So here is the earthly existence. It is to live in the midst of sin and to enjoy it. To run after it. You all lived there once. So, verse 8, now, but now, you must put them all away. Anger and wrath and malice and slander and obscene talk from your mouth. Strip off the filthy garments of slow-burning anger. Seething anger. Strip off quick-tempered anger. Vicious attitudes bent on hurting others. Malice. Hurting someone's reputation with our tongue, slander, filthy speech, saying godless things. Our speech must be kind, it must be clean, it must be true. Verse 9, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Since our old man has died and we have put on the new man, we should put off the deeds of the old man. We are being transformed into the likeness of God, 2 Corinthians 3.18 and 1 John 3.2. We need to act accordingly in cooperation with God's purposes. We are new men and women, members of a new humanity, of which Christ is the new Adam. Live like it. 
put these things off. We're new people. We're new creatures. Verse 11, here there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, or free, but Christ is all and in all. All of the old barriers are obliterated in Christ. The racial barriers of Greek and Jew, the ceremonial barrier of circumcised and uncircumcised, the uncultured and the really uncultured, Scythian. There's not bond. There's not free. We form a new humanity over which Christ reigns supreme, in which Christ has infused his life and thus binds us all together in love. We are a new people. Live like it. We all struggle with sin. We've come today with that struggle very much in our understanding and experience. There is sin that we struggle with privately, each one of us. There is sin that we struggle with as a community, as a church, as we interact with one another. What we need to see in all of this is to realize that to sin is to live entirely out of sync with who we are in Christ. This thought may be new for some, and I ask that you just stake it in your mind. And to begin to think in these terms, this is not who I am as I live in sin. Not if I've been truly redeemed by Christ. For others, this is old knowledge in one sense. One that we're always coming to seek to understand and to better experience in our life. But our focus must be on Christ seated and reigning. And our identity with Him. And then putting to death the deeds of sin that are so out of sync with who we are. Let me give you just very quickly a biblical strategy that we seem to find in Scripture. Sever the root of sin in your daily experience. First, call sin, sin, and repent of it. Secondly, trust by faith that you have power over sin in union with Jesus Christ. Thirdly, patiently rest in God's promise that the Holy Spirit is performing a transformational work in your life. Number four, actively strategize to dis discipline your life to avoid sin. Five, grow in your perception of the glory and goodness of Jesus Christ. And six, focus on your future glorification with Him. Now, this is no thing you take home on a piece of paper and put into practice in one afternoon and get it all fixed, is it? It's a way of looking at life. And by the lifestyle of God's people in this world, it's quite clear we need a different way of looking at life than what we're practicing. We need to acknowledge sin and sever its roots in our life actively, aggressively. As Paul says, I labor and toil and work to see you matured in Christ. He is in you by the grace of God. May we live that out. But it will never do, it will never do to simply strip off sin. In the place of sin, we must thirdly put on the virtues of Christ. We see this in verses 12 through 17. 
And I have, through the years and some this week, spent hours translating each of these Greek words, reading historical background as to their meaning, following the implications of these words through the New Testament and cross-references, considering their background and context and all the like. But I thought, in light of where we're headed today, and just as this sermon is put together, that perhaps the best thing we can do is just slowly read them and meditate on them. I don't want to comment too much on any of this list, so that we might just center our minds on what is it that pleases God. What does a life look like that pleases Him? We are to strip off sin, but we are to actively put on the virtues of Jesus Christ. What does that look like? Meditate. Concentrate. Allow the Spirit of God to teach you as we read together. Put on then as God's chosen ones, verse 12, holy and beloved, compassion. Compassion. Kindness. Humility. Meekness and patience. Bearing with one another and, if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. 14. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Let me go back just briefly to verse 16 and draw out a couple of ideas here that might be good to bring to the surface. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. The word of Christ is the doctrine about Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ is to so control the focus and focus the attention of our lives that two things pour out of it. What will happen is the Word of Christ dwells within us. There will first of all be teaching and admonishing of one another. You see it there in verse 16. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. In spiritually vibrant churches, people talk to one another about the wisdom of God. In spiritually vibrant churches, people talk to one another about how their lives line up with the wisdom of God. And that's the idea of admonishing. 
It is discussing the things of God, discussing the wisdom of God, and it is also talking with one another about how our lives line up with that. There are to be no Lone Ranger Christians in the church of Jesus Christ. In the community of faith, there is to be not only teaching, but correcting and counseling with compassion, certainly, with kindness, humility, meekness, patience, forbearance, and forgiveness. It's not the kind of address that comes in judgmental spirit, in ugly-heartedness. But we must understand that Eden Baptist Church is not a shopping mall where we visit and get our spiritual food and run home with no thought of the other shoppers. We are a spiritual flock, and we are all preachers of God's Word. We are to be a community in which there is teaching and in which there is admonition. We need one another's edification and counsel. That is what is to spill out of us as we allow the Word of God to dwell richly in us, teaching, admonishing with all wisdom. Secondly, what is it? Verse 16, it is songs, singing. Singing in our hearts, that is, with your entire being, I think is the idea. We are to be so overwhelmed with joy in Christ that we become a vibrant singing people, a singing that is infused with a spirit of thanksgiving, we notice in verse 16. And as verse 17 says, in general then, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father through Him. This is not, there is not a specific word for every eventuality. There is not a hard and fast rule for every life situation. But in all things, at all times, in every way, we are to be doing everything in line with the reputation and the cause of Jesus Christ in whom we are, in whom we live. And again, it is always to be with thanksgiving to God through the mediation of Jesus Christ. Can you imagine, just skim through verses 12 through 17 again. Can you imagine if these verses characterized our hearts, our families, our church. If we could say that the virtues of Jesus Christ were in abundance among us, what we have done is look, basically, into a picture of who Jesus is and what his life looked like on the earth. He was full of compassion and patience and gentleness and meekness and humility forbearance and patience with people and forgiving others. Everything was bound together in love which he poured out toward his people. The word of God dwelt in him richly as he led other people along and as I believe he sang songs to God. What if this characterized us? You know, this list in verses 12 through 17 never will if we do not actively put sin to death in our experience. It is really frustrating when criticisms rise that a church or a family 
do not bear out these principles and these characteristics when the idea is simply a critical, judgmental assessment of such a church or family. These things don't happen because you administrate them, do they? They happen because we actively put sin to death. And as we actively put sin to death, by the grace of God, we can put on the virtues of Jesus Christ. These things do not happen accidentally. It's a work that we must each be doing individually and each be doing corporately within the assembly. We will not live such a life of virtue if we do not learn to hear and smell and taste heaven and see life in the glow of that future day when the reigning Christ promises to transform us into his image. That work is taking place now, little by little. May we, in the strength of Christ, actively bring into being the transforming work that he has promised to bring to fullness in us. He must do it. But we cooperate with him, actively putting sin off and stripping it off and putting on righteousness in its place. So let us do that, to strip off sin, to put on Christ, to the joy of our souls, to the blessing of our families and church, and to the glory of our reigning Savior, who is there today and who beckons us home. Let's bow for prayer. Father, we give thanks for the reminder of your word, of the rich heritage that we have as the children of God. And I pray, Father, that we will respond to this passage of Scripture and put to death the deeds of the flesh and that we would put on the righteous standing of Christ and his virtues. May this be our focus actively as we set our sights on glory. There may be some among us who have not come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, and I pray, Father, that they would come to embrace the death and resurrection of Christ for their salvation. For those of us who have, Father, that we would take to heart this high calling that we have received. We do not live our lives for ourselves. We live them for you, and we do not live them in our own strength, but we live them through you. And I pray that the indwelling Christ would shine forth from us as we set our focus on heaven. Help us to get off of the earthly things that tear us down. The seemingly little sins that violate your holiness and your goodness and cloud our vision of your glories and your satisfactions and perfections. God, I pray that you'll purify this church, that you will help us to grow in the likeness of Christ. May we make this effort in the strength that Jesus alone provides. It is in his name that we pray. Amen.